Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Hello. Before today's episode, I would like to ask you to please review and rate my podcast because it does help with the ranking and makes it much easier and more visible for people to find. So you would actually be helping individuals like you. Thank you. Hello, welcome to my podcast and YouTube channel. Today I have a guest called Catherine. She's a counselor from Portland, Oregon. And we found each other on Facebook. I often post on some of our groups that have counselors and they're dedicated to mental health, asking for stories and if they want to share their stories. And she was kind enough to contact me back. Here she is. And she's going to share her story with you. So, Catherine, could we start? Well, first of all, thank you so much for this. Um, And welcome. Welcome to the podcast and YouTube channel. Because for the podcast listeners, you can always watch these interviews on my channel, Understand Suicide. So, Catherine, can you tell us just a little bit about your childhood, where you were born? your family, just a little bit about, you know, where did it all start? Yes, um, absolutely. I've uh, lived in the Northwest, Pacific Northwest, for pretty much my whole life. I was born in Salem um, and grew up between Salem and an outskirt of Portland. And we moved around a lot because my dad is a pastor. So I, my childhood was kind of a mixed thing because there's a lot about it that I really enjoyed. I enjoyed mm-hmm. outdoors. I loved being in nature. Um, I loved playing down at the creek. I just, if I could be outside, I was going to be outside. If it was rainy weather, I was going to be in a book in my room. That was me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, my childhood, though... Um, I had to really look for those those good things in my adult life because there was a lot of hard things that happened in my childhood. There was sexual abuse that happened not in my family, but family friends um, and within the extended family as well. And so um, I was dealing with a lot at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, And then when my dad went into ministry, it was like I was trying to be um, what I was supposed to be, you know, this good Christian. It was a Christian denomination, a good Christian daughter. And I was dealing with um, the fallout from having been sexually abused. And I really didn't know how to manage it. And I didn't know how to talk about it either and didn't really feel like I could talk about it mm-hmm. so um so it was a real mixed bag and I went into junior high and high school just kind of 
out of my mind a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I started sleeping with um, guys at the age of 14. And um, so I, I really split off into here's my, here's my good Christian girl that goes to church and is the pastor's daughter. And then here's this other girl that's doing all of these things that she shouldn't be doing, but mm-hmm. just, and just out of control. Mm-hmm. Do you find that that was because maybe you didn't share what you went through as a child? Yeah, I'm sure it is. Cause I know that as a counselor, I know that the sooner that somebody tells as sooner that a child mm-hmm. talks about abuse, the less chance they have for long-term consequences of it. Mm-hmm. So I just, me not talking about it, kept it a secret, and the secret just ate at me. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, yeah. You didn't feel like you could really talk to anyone? Was that because you were afraid of their reaction? Or was it because, because one of the things that, I mean, you, you as a counselor know this, but it's very common for kids to blame themselves for what's happening. Sure. Did it happen to you? Right. Yes, absolutely. One of the things that offenders do is they transfer blame onto the child. So the child carries the weight of the burden. And I absolutely felt that, that if I told that um, I wasn't going to be believed and that there was, besides, if it happened to me, there must be something so horribly wrong with me Mm. that why would I want to bring that out into the light? Mm -hmm. I, I also had some situations where I tried to tell my parents some other things that weren't sexual abuse, but that were similar, like saying... Um, the babysitter's house had pictures of naked people in books. Mm-hmm. I was trying to tell them about pornography and just got shut down. And no, that's not possible. This is a good Christian family. Mm-hmm. So I just, it was like, well, I know it happened because I saw it. And so it didn't really open the door for me to be able to say, hey, guess what happened to me, you know, at any point. Mm-hmm. At any point, yeah. It's very confusing for a child to deal with all that. I'm so sorry you went through that, Kat. Thank you. Thank you. It's very painful. Mm-hmm. So uh, you jumped into being a teenager, so yes. it was another confusing time for you. Yes, very confusing. And do you, do you, looking back now, do you find that back then this was a way of you maybe trying to cope with the pain you're feeling and all these secrets coming from childhood and not being able to open up? That the depression, I had, I know that I was dealing with depression in high school, but I wasn't diagnosed until I was 27. Um, But I do think me shutting down, um, the depression makes me shut down. I do think that I was fighting against that in high school. And what I did at the time was bury myself in piles of activities and straight A's. Mm -hmm. And I just, I was constantly going, I just didn't give myself breaks. Mm -hmm. And I ended up getting an ulcer and just, it was, it was really hard because it felt like I was uh, going upstream, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm fighting against everything to stay afloat. Mm -hmm. But at the time you noticed that there was something maybe out of balance with you. You just didn't didn't name it. 
Right. Yeah. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. My mom struggles with depression. Um, I don't know if she does now, but I know she did back then. And so I did see depression a lot. And it was confusing to me because it was the same thing that I did. Mom was mm -hmm. um, depressed and angry and sad. But then when somebody from the church would come over, she would have to turn on to this, um, you know, this bright, welcoming, lovely Christian woman. And I would watch that happening and just go, wait a minute, that's the mom I want, <laughs> the, the happy mom. Um, there was a disconnect between these two mothers. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And in a way, you, you repeated that pattern. Yes, yes, I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How how did it affect your relationships when you were a teenager? I've thought about that a lot and I I I wish that I was in touch with some of the people I had relationships with back then to just mm -hmm. ask them. Mm -hmm. I know that with the guys that I was with, they were the relationships <laughs> were very focused on sexual activity, mm -hmm. so there wasn't really a lot of relationship stuff going on um, with my friends. I don't know. I I guess I love to be able to ask them what I was like as a, a person. They felt like I have one friend that I've kept in touch with, and she always just wondered what was happening within the walls of our house. Mm. She just felt like there was something going on, and nobody could put their finger on it, mm -hmm. and. Yeah. So. Yeah, I I hear I hear you saying uh, I don't remember. I wish I could ask them or get in touch with people I knew back then. And again, I go back to trauma response. Yeah. yeah. That's that's so typical too, isn't it? We have yeah. these big chunks of memory just gone because of the right. trauma. Right. It's a very common thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then in my, I think it was my sophomore year was the first time that I tried to commit suicide. I didn't do, I just got a bottle of pills and they weren't prescription pills. They were just mm -hmm. the pills that uh, like aspirin type of thing mm -hmm. and took a bottle of that because I was so overwhelmed after a breakup and I didn't have any coping skills and couldn't really talk about it. Mm -hmm and took this bottle i got really really sick but i never told my parents told what it. was wrong mm -hmm. i just got really sick what was also oh, they didn't know that you attempted back then they didn't know mm -hmm. did you search for help at the time no no i did not i didn't do anything to ask for help at, at that at that time mm -hmm. yeah it just it was I was just, I remember feeling completely overwhelmed, like my head was just going to explode. Too much, yeah. And I had been running to try to burn off some of the adrenaline. And I'm not really much of a runner, but I was running as fast as I could, trying to burn off some of the adrenaline and just mm -hmm. felt completely out of control. Came home, grabbed the bottle, swallowed a bunch of it, went to bed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what do you think now looking back was... What helped you? What took you to a path of, uh, I want to end the pain, to I want to live a healthier life? 
I didn't, I didn't have that at that time. Mm-hmm. I just, I got, um, finished throwing up mm-hmm. and was still sick for a little while after that. And then, um, I just had to get up and keep going. So in that, in that attempt, I didn't really have anything that was redeeming about it at mm-hmm. the time. It wasn't like I had this big epiphany that said, I want to live. It was okay. just, okay, I just have to get up and go back to school mm-hmm. and just keep doing the things I was doing before. Mm-hmm. So I, I had other kind of epiphanies later on in my life when I dealt with suicide, things that grounded me and kept me here on the planet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, I don't know if there was anything at that time or else I just don't remember it. Mm-hmm. Again, I just might mm-hmm. not remember it. Mm-hmm. When did you, when did you decide to do, to go to school for counseling? Oh, I decided that um, in, I think it was in the, somewhere in 2000. No, it was in 1997 or eight, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And um, I had been working at an agency where they worked with people who had experienced sexual abuse in their childhood. And I had gone through my own recovery process as well there. Mm -hmm. And that was when I fell in love with the work and really Mm -hmm. wanted to do it. So I went to school it took forever. It took 13 years for me to finish my degree. Really? <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> yeah, it was just such a slow process as I was parenting a special mm-hmm. needs child. I went through a divorce in that time as well. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, yeah. So it just ended up being this very lengthy process. It was such a big deal when I finally graduated. Mm-hmm. So it, it, for you, it was a way to maybe maybe give back because you had a good experience with therapy? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my own experience. I really never thought that I could be as well as I was when I finished that first round of counseling for the sexual abuse mm. in my childhood. Mm. I really, it, it, I really never expected I could have a life that I really enjoyed and wow. wanted. Do you remember what, I mean, what helped in terms of, of the counseling process, the therapy? Oh, I think the biggest thing for me was because I hadn't, talked about any of it mm-hmm. getting it out and because well because I hadn't talked about it I had all this thinking about myself that was so full of shame and mm-hmm. that I was ugly and dirty and um chronically bad yeah. um so all of my thinking errors I was able to look at examine and, decide whether they were actually true or whether they were based out of pain from the past. Mm. And so that evaluation process over and over of so many of my thoughts and actions was like, oh, I haven't even decided what I believe about myself. I don't even know who I am. So it was like I rebuilt me. 
Yeah, you had a pro you. I mean, the view that you had of yourself was a projection of what happened to you. Yes, it was. It was completely everything <clears throat> straight out of pain it was based out of sexual abuse. I didn't even know when I went into counseling when they asked me like, "What's your favorite color?" And wow. I, I was like, "It doesn't really matter what my yeah. favorite color." You were, you were totally out of touch with yourself. Yeah, you were yes. stuck in the pain of the past. Yes, completely. Mm -hmm. If you want more information about suicide, my book is now available on Amazon, both in paperback and digital formats. Just type in the title, Understanding Suicide, or my name, Paula Fontinelli. The book was written for people like you, and it's the result of more than 10 years of conversations with families who lost loved ones to suicide, individuals who attempted suicide, specialists, and mental health professionals. Thank you for your support. Now back to the interview. So can you tell us a little bit more of, <clears throat> I know that you had a, another attempt mm -hmm. a few years ago. That was a very hard moment in your life too. So if you want to talk about that too, and also what helped. Right. Yeah. In 2018, um, I was working as a therapist in private practice. Mm -hmm. I was finally um, got to a point where I was supporting myself and my practice financially. I had bought myself a new car um, and was in a good place. And it was just everything was going to go up from there. I was just finally there, finally doing mm -hmm. what I had been wanting to do all these years. And then I experienced a sexual assault in, um, it was, I think, October of 2018. And I just started to unravel at that time. And um, I went from being able to see clients to absolutely not being able to see clients anymore. Mm -hmm. And I had to take a medical leave, which lasted for 14 months, actually. I just started seeing clients again like two months ago. Mm -hmm. um, but I went, I spiraled at that point. I was so devastated that it would happen again. I, I knew as a woman, you know, that it could happen again because we live in a world where these things happen to women. But I didn't want to think it would happen again to me after all the work that I had done. Because uh, you, you had worked hard to, to create a new image of yourself and to, yeah. to live a different life. Yeah. And it just, do you find that it took you back to that state? It took me, what, what ended up happening is I went into a place of, if this, of thinking, if this is going to keep happening to me, I absolutely do not want to be on this planet any longer. Mm -hmm. I, I cannot deal with this happening over and over and over, having to heal over and over and over. It's mm -hmm. not fair. And I just don't want to keep doing it. And so I lost all faith in the future. 
I had no hope Mm -hmm. and went, um, I, before Christmas, I was really bottoming out before Christmas of that year. And I went through Christmas season saying to myself, as things happen, this is my last Christmas day with my daughter. This is my last time going to the Nutcracker with my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everything I did, this was the last time I'm going to do this. And, and I know I'm not going to survive it. That's where I was at. It wasn't to the point of taking my life, but I was to the point of saying goodbye to my life. Mm-hmm. Not and, wanting that life, yeah. Right, right. So what, hel- what helped you get out of there, of that state again? What helped me? Um, I ended up going into the hospital. Mm-hmm. I had gone in and out of the hospital when I was suicidal a couple different times. Mm-hmm. And then they would release me because they would send me to the intensive outpatient program. But then I would end up back in the hospital. So I ended up going into the hospital in January and staying for 16 days. And in that time, I was able to be in a place where I was safe because they were monitoring me every 15 Mm -hmm. minutes to make sure that I wasn't hurting myself in any way. And so, and and I didn't have to do any of that. I didn't have to have any responsibilities. I just took the classes that they offered. So when I left, I wasn't in great shape because I was still, I was still a mess from what had happened, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't in that same suicidal place. I was still in the space of, I really hate life, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I went to the intensive outpatient program, um, got a lot of skills to use. Mm -hmm. Um, The biggest thing that really helped me though, was my friends. My friends really showed up for me. They showed up at the hospital for me um, over and over again when I would be in the ER. I would have Mm. friends that would show up. My brother showed up for me as well Mm. and his kids. How would they help? Because we, we, I often mention here um, on my podcast when I interview people who went through your experience or something similar, they often say, what helped me was my wife, what helped me was my, my kids or friends. So it's usually relationships. Yeah. But when you say they helped, was it because they were present? Was it because they showed up and because they were compassionate? Or how, how would you um, explain or give ex- just examples of, of how this help can actually yeah. materialize? After I got out of the hospital, one of the things that really helped me because I was still um, just not really super safe at that point mm-hmm. um, is that some evenings, so I lived by myself mm-hmm. and so I didn't have any accountability with me there at the house. And so I would ask a friend, can you be with me as in, mm-hmm. can you text me every 15 minutes and make sure that I'm being safe? And we would just kind of have fun mm-hmm. with it is what it ended up being. And then so the, the would, presence, just the presence yes. of being there. 
Yes. And then it was it, like in the hospital, it was the same thing. It was just people's presence. They would show up and I, and I knew that it was a big deal. They were under a lot of stress because of what I was experiencing. They were scared and they still showed up. And we would just talk about regular things. We didn't have to talk about, you know, me feeling like I didn't want to live. We would just talk about the regular things of life and art and yeah. kids and whatever. And it made mm -hmm. me feel more grounded, like I was a part of something more than what was happening in my head. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Catherine, because... We often think that being there for someone in a time like this, and this is what scares people away, is that you have to talk about that. You have oh. to ask about the attempt or, what's, or go deep into your pain. Or, I mean, right. you, if, if you want to, that's fine. But it's not that. It's just saying, oh. I'm here for you. Let's talk about the weather or whatever. Yeah. It's, just, it's just the presence of you knowing that you matter to someone. You don't actually have to talk about that. And that's very important to know because it scares people away naturally. Yes. Yeah, I, I realize that. I <laughs> people say all kind my friends say all kind of things like, I'll kill you if you kill yourself. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, hmm. Yeah. That's kind of funny, but yeah, I get it. So there's there was some humor in there. Mm -hmm. It was helpful. Yeah, but humor is helpful, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I actually, uh, a friend of mine called me a few months ago. He wasn't really thinking about suicide, but he said he was in a lot of having, going through crisis and he said, yeah, I often think about you, Paula. So that's why I'm calling you. Can you help me? Say, you better not do anything because you're like one of my best friends. Think about my reputation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And he always laughs when, he, when I say that. So it, it's important to bring humor too because it is hard for people to understand that you can and it's okay, yeah. right? Yeah, a lot of times when people were checking in on me every half hour or every 15 minutes by phone, mm -hmm. it was funny stuff. They would send me funny memes yes. uh -huh. or silly little, just silly pictures and that mm -hmm. type of thing. And I would respond and then, you know, mm -hmm. and everything was fine, mm -hmm. you know. And I knew that somebody was there and I wasn't going to do anything because I didn't want to. In that time frame, like if my friend Kelly was there for me and checking in on me every 15 minutes, I wasn't going to do something to myself while she was going out of her way for me. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't going to hurt her in that way mm -hmm. and leave her with mm -hmm. feeling guilty and that kind of responsibility. Mm -hmm. so, do you find that your experience helps you as a counselor? Um, I am certain that it helps me because um, when people say they're suicidal there's something different about that mind frame um, mm. when you're suicidal and you're out of your own mind mm. and because I remember thinking one time um, well this will be my last Christmas with my daughter. She's going to be okay though, because she's got other people that love her. And so I was like, that's me so far out of my mind to think mm. that. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I forgot. It does, it does distort your thinking, doesn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, it absolutely does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was asking I was asking about you as a counselor. So when they say they're suicidal, you you understand there is a connection and you don't judge, for example. Do you think right. that happens? Yeah, I get that they're feeling beyond their ability to cope with anything mm -hmm. really that happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you self-disclose to them sometimes? Um I have not self-disclosed about this. Uh, this mm -hmm. really is my first time talking about the whole story out loud in a public mm -hmm. forum right now. Well, thank so, you. Yeah. Thank you for your trust. I yes. appreciate and I, I hope I honor that. Yes. And I hope you know that the reason why I do this is because I want people to connect with you. There are many people listening to my podcasts and they do that because they are at risk and yeah. i often try to show them that there is a way out and there are other ways of connecting with your pain and of you know other lives all other paths and that's why i do this yeah yeah and i'm i appreciate that you do yeah mm -hmm. what would you say kat just to finish what would you say to someone who is thinking about suicide mm. Oh, yeah, I guess I would say do anything you can to reach out. And if you don't have people to reach out to, go to the hospital and let somebody take care of you for a little while. Do anything. Do the things that you don't think that you would ever do. I never thought I would admit myself into the hospital. I never did, especially after having my practice open and everything. But I had to go there. I had to reach out to my friends. I had to put myself, my well-being, and my desire ultimately underneath it all I wanted to be there for my daughter mm -hmm. and so I had to fight and do whatever I could whatever it took to just stay on the planet one more day and that's what I would tell myself I just have to be here today and then I'll sleep tonight hopefully <laughs> and then I'll do one more day and whatever that day looks like, I don't know, could be unpredictable. I could end mm -hmm. up in the hospital again, but I would be alive for one more day. And then what happens is that you keep fighting and you fight for yourself and you eventually start, it's the pain starts shifting so that mm -hmm. you're not in that, that crazy, not, I don't want to say crazy, but that overwhelmed headspace you're not in that space you mm -hmm. start shifting and you start seeing some value in your life you start seeing some beauty in, around you you start seeing nature again mm -hmm. um, you see the people you, it's like you look at your friends and go oh my gosh wow this is a beautiful human and I want this in my life. I don't want to lose these people. I don't mm -hmm. want to lose my family. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, mm -hmm. you, you do what you can and you fight every day mm -hmm. for it. Can we end with you talking about your daughter? Because you uh -huh. mentioned her a few times. Yes. Um, yeah, she's amazing. She's 30 years old. She mm -hmm. was born with special needs. And so she's 
um, lives with her dad and I. She goes back and forth between our two places. And she's just one of these beautiful souls. She just, like anyone that meets her, smiles. Mm -hmm. And she just makes everyone feel like they're really special. And so I remember sitting in the hospital and her dad came in to see me and he said, I said to him, I can't do this to Chrissy. And he said, no, you absolutely cannot do this to Chrissy. You cannot do this to Chrissy. Mm -hmm. If anything, if you hold on to anything, hold on to that. That Chrissy is what you're fighting for. Even mm -hmm. when you don't feel like fighting for yourself, fight for Chrissy. Mm -hmm. So she... Uh, she brings light to your life, I can tell. Yeah, she absolutely yeah. does. And yeah. I'm very thankful that I was given her and that she was a part, a, such an important part of saving my life without mm -hmm. me leaning on her or anything because that would be inappropriate. But, but her presence in my life uh, saved me, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Kat, thank you so much for sharing your story and thank you for doing this for the first time. Yes, you're welcome. Uh -huh. Thank you for the opportunity. And you take care of yourself and keep that smile on your face when you talk about your daughter. It's a beautiful smile. Thank you. And, have a, and stay home. We're still doing the quarantine. I know, yeah. Driving us all nuts. Yeah, <laughs> sure is. Thank you and have a good day. Thank you, Paula. You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com.